The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hi, I'm Chloe Gio, and you're listening to On God's Campus, Voices from the Queer Underground, a podcast about white Christian supremacy and being queer on the most conservative campuses in the country. Think of me as your guide and translator as we explore the carefully constructed subculture of religious education. Joining me are co-hosts Paul Carlos Southwick, our resident legal expert and historian, and Aaron Green, our biblical scholar, What you will find here is a roadmap to change from the underbelly of the church's best-kept secrets. I was born in 1983 in Oregon. My mother, a brown Mexican-American woman born in San Antonio, Texas in the 1950s, dedicated me to God and his church as a baby. Tonight, our first candidate is Paul Southwick, a young man who Pastor Larry White has been working with. Paul is eight years old. This evening, he says this about his walk with the Lord to this point. I've been growing up in a Christian home. The one word I can use to describe it is happy. As I've been growing up, being a part of the church is real important. We've been in in church almost every Sunday, and it's been this church, the First Church of the Nazarene. In the 1980s and 90s, To escape from the dangers of the world and secular society, my parents homeschooled my sister and I, using curriculum from Bob Jones University. Bob Jones University is not only a religious school and college, it also produces a popular homeschooling curriculum. I still have some of these Bob Jones school books. In one of them, Bible Truths for Christian Schools 3, I wrote my name in the top right-hand corner, along with the heart, drawn in pencil, the words, I love the Lord, appear nearby. In the note to parents at the beginning of the textbook, it reads, quote, The publishers feel that the systematic teaching of the Bible is one of the most important functions of the Christian school. This volume is one part of an extended series of study texts and teacher's manuals designed to train young minds in the fundamentals of the faith. One of the lessons in my book featured images of President Lincoln. After extolling Lincoln's virtues and describing the Civil War as a bloody wound fought by farm boys and factory workers, the text reads that Abe Lincoln led the North, but he understood and loved the good men of the South. The text continues, but never mentions slavery or black people. Back when Paul was a kid, homeschooling was mostly a world of white, conservative Christians. Homeschooling has become more popular and diverse since the COVID-19 pandemic. There were 3.7 million homeschooled students in the USA during the 2020-2021 school year. And from late March to early May of 2022, over 5% of all school-aged children were homeschooled. 
there is almost no regulation of homeschooling in the U.S., and Bob Jones University remains one of the most popular publishers of homeschooling curriculum. While being homeschooled during my junior high and high school years, I entered the pro-life movement by raising money, giving speeches, volunteering at our local pregnancy resource center, and participating in political protests on behalf of the unborn. After high school, I continued my studies and activism at my local conservative Christian college, George Fox University, where a white male mentor guided me further into the religious right. My generation's mission was to fight against abortion, homosexuality, and secular humanism. Paul is part of what is called the Joshua Generation, which is a generation of youth raised in the 1980s and 1990s who were trained by white conservative religious networks to seek political power, cultural influence, and reshape the American political order according to biblical principles. There is a book called The Joshua Generation, Restoring the Heritage of Christian Leadership. It is written by Michael Ferris. Michael Ferris is a name you should know. He has worn many hats in protecting the educational pipeline of white Christian supremacy. Michael Ferris is the founder of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which advocates for the rights of Christian parents to homeschool their children without government regulation. He is also a fierce opponent of reproductive rights. Last year, Michael Ferris preached at a church in Virginia on the Bible and the Constitution. He is on stage, and behind him is a large screen with the image of the Bible on top of the U.S. Constitution. The American flag drapes around the image on both sides. Here is some of what he had to say. The Constitution and the Supreme Court have been at the very forefront of virtually all conversations in recent days, and with good reason. After 49 years of suffering under Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court reversed course and did the right thing, and we praise God. Amen. Ferris is also the founder of Patrick Henry College, a Christian college near D.C. that recruits heavily from Christian homeschooling communities and trains Christian political leaders, many of whom became part of the Trump administration. And Ferris was most recently the leader of Alliance Defending Freedom, another anti-LGBTQ hate group. Overall, a really great guy. One review of Ferris's Joshua Generation book summed it up like this, quote, This book makes a powerful case for why Christian students must avoid attending secular colleges, but instead go to solidly Christian schools, i.e. those schools that teach all subjects from a decidedly biblical perspective. Christians should strive to become leaders in all areas of society and lead as serious Christians, not as secularists with a Christian veneer, and not to retreat into their pietistic ghettos, as do many Christians today." End quote. Every year, millions of parents send their children to religious schools and colleges with strict rules about what students can do with their bodies. These schools strictly regulate who students are allowed to date, what they are allowed to wear, and whether they can have an abortion. Some schools and colleges teach creationism as science and only teach evolution to disprove it as a secular theory. These schools take pride in being different from the culture at large. 
They view themselves as set apart and as safe havens from the indoctrination of the secular world. In the 1950s and 1960s, white evangelical parents in the South founded hundreds of new religious schools in response to Brown v. Board of Education, which required racial integration of the public schools, something many white Christians perceived as an unbiblical attack on their faith at the time. As historian J. Russell Hawkins states in his book, The Bible Told Them So, How Southern Evangelicals Fought to Preserve White Supremacy, quote, the full impact and lasting power of white theological beliefs about segregation were most clearly revealed in conflicts surrounding the desegregation of church colleges, the integration of denominational structures, and the establishment of private Christian schools. Historians now call these whites-only religious schools segregation academies. I think that is a fitting term, because to segregate means to set apart from the rest, or from each other, isolate, or divide. Historically, many religious schools and colleges were segregated based on race because of their sincerely held religious belief that God required the separation of the races, and that interracial marriage was unbiblical. Now, many religious schools and colleges, like the one I graduated from, segregate based on sexual orientation and gender identity because they sincerely believe that the Bible condemns same-sex marriage and gender nonconformity. They do so by expelling gay and trans students or students who have gay or trans parents. They do the same with their employees. They create educational environments in which gay, trans, and non-binary students are largely erased unless they are willing to repent of their sins, deny their identities, or remain single, celibate, and conform to the sex they were assigned at birth, which is also a form of erasure. So, in case you aren't following, the current movement for religious exemptions from civil rights laws that protect LGBTQ plus people was quite literally built on the prior movement for religious exemptions from civil rights laws that protected black people. What I didn't know at the time that I was training in the religious and political movement to end abortion and prohibit same-sex marriage was that I was joining a movement built on anti-black racism. None of my teachers told me this history. Not at my Christian college, not at the Family Research Council, and not at Alliance Defending Freedom. What I realize now is that if I had been born a few years earlier, my mission in this movement would have included protecting the right of Christian families to send their children to religious schools and colleges that prohibited interracial dating. And I would have carried out these anti-black racist missions because they told me it was what God wanted me to do. And I trusted them. And, as I'm sure you can see now, they are trying to preserve what is left of their white Christian supremacy by shielding the next generation from what they call woke curriculum and critical race theory. They are going so far as to fire professors who call out the racial injustices that their religious and political movement perpetuates. As reported by NPR earlier this year, Sam Jockel, a longtime English professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University, a conservative Christian college in Florida, 
claims that the university terminated his contract early after an accusation that his racial justice teachings were, quote, indoctrinating students. Professor Jockel isn't the only one. Religion News Service reported in May of this year that Julie Moore, an English professor at Taylor University, a leading evangelical university in Indiana, lost her job, in part because the school deemed her writing classes too liberal on racial justice issues. They are literally silencing racial justice voices on our campuses by firing beloved professors. For them, preserving a white Christian narrative is more important than teaching accurate history or facing unpleasant facts or preserving academic freedom or just treating people fairly. This is how white Christian supremacy works. It uses force, unrestricted by law or academic standards, to indoctrinate and to resist human rights. They are using the same playbook to silence voices supporting LGBTQ justice too. In July of this year, Inside Higher Ed reported that Kelsey Morrison, a women's soccer coach at Geneva College, a Christian college in Pennsylvania, was fired for posting messages supporting the LGBTQ community on her Instagram page, such as, quote, queer people offer precious gifts to the church, don't miss out, and Jesus is radically inclusive. In April of this year, the Christian Post reported that Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego fired a dean who had defended a professor with progressive views on sexuality. And in 2017, the student newspaper of Gordon College, an evangelical institution in Massachusetts, reported a professor claimed the college denied her promotion after she had vocally and publicly opposed Gordon College's discriminatory policies relating to LGBTQ plus individuals. These types of firings are not normal. They are aggressive tactics aimed at silencing professors and restricting academic freedom. And they are firing these professors, coaches, and deans, even though their schools are all accredited by secular accrediting agencies. Their athletic programs belong to the NCAA, and they received billions in federal funding from the U.S. government. They consider themselves above the law. And as of right now, they are above the law. All of these schools have something else in common. They are members of a powerful industry group that fights for their right to exist above the law. That industry group is the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. You'll hear more about them later. For now, these recent firings demonstrate that these colleges, along with their allies at Alliance Defending Freedom, the Family Research Council, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, and the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities are waging a legal and political war on behalf of white Christian supremacy. It's a war that they waged before against black people, but ultimately lost. And this time, they aim to win. Now that I've learned the true history of the movement and educational institutions that raised me, I fight on the side of the oppressed. But I used to be on the other side. I know how they operate. And I will tell you what we are all in for in the years and decades to come. But first, let me take you back in time a bit.
It's 1983, the year I was born. Ronald Reagan is president. This year, the most important legal battle between white Christian supremacy and human rights is to be decided by the United States Supreme Court. At the center of this controversy is Bob Jones University, a fundamentalist college in Greenville, South Carolina, founded by Bob Jones Sr. I visited the campus in 2021 while on a tour of Christian colleges to meet LGBTQ students for a lawsuit I would file later that year. I'm here at Bob Jones University. I'm on campus. It is February 20th, 2021. Here with uh, one of our plaintiffs walking around campus, uh, getting some photos. Um, The campus looks and feels like a penitentiary. There are walls around the entire campus and the entryways are gated. The buildings are all beige. The students look surprisingly similar to each other because there are strict rules about haircuts and clothes. Most of the students are white. The members of the Bob Jones family are actually buried in a central location on campus. I took a photo of their graves, which contain the following inscriptions. Robert Reynolds Jones, born October 30th, 1883, died January 16th, 1968. A fight well fought, a course well run, the faith well kept, a crown well won. Robert Reynolds Jones Jr., Born October the 19th, 1911, died November the 12th, 1997. A prophet's eye, a poet's voice, a servant's hands, a ransomed soul. Those two white Christian men were staunch anti-black racists. But the university doesn't want you to remember them that way. Bob Jones University was a segregationist institution and prohibited black students from attending into the 1970s. It was a whites-only school because it sincerely believed that God separated the races and did not want them to intermarry. So this is where the legal controversy really begins, and things start to get heated. Beginning in 1970, the IRS notified Bob Jones University that it would no longer grant tax-exempt status to educational institutions that maintain racially discriminatory admissions policies, even religious ones like Bob Jones. The Supreme Court had decided Brown v. Board of Education 15 years earlier, which held that public schools could no longer segregate students based on race. A subsequent court decision involving black parents who wanted to send their children to whites-only private schools, extended the holding to some private schools. This is why the IRS sent Bob Jones University that letter in 1970. Bob Jones protested the threatened revocation of its tax-exempt status, but within a year, allowed black students. But only if they were already married. And only if they were married to another black person. It took a while, but after further pressure, the university did allow unmarried black students to attend, 
four years later, in 1975. And you might be wondering at this point, why would a black student like me want to go to a white school like Bob Jones where I wouldn't be treated equally? Queer students at Christian colleges get this question all the time now. The answer? Black students wanted to go to the schools that would best set them up for professional success, and most of those schools were controlled by white people. Separate did not mean equal. These whites-only religious schools offered great programs and job opportunities and let them integrate their faith into their learning. But also, Christianity often functions as a means of white assimilation and a way to fit into the fabric of America. After all, whiteness is next to godliness. The IRS saw right through Bob Jones' partial change of policy. The changes weren't good enough because Bob Jones University continued to prohibit its students from interracial dating and interracial marriage. Here are the rules that were in effect at the time. Quote, there is to be no interracial dating. One, students who are partners in an interracial marriage will be expelled. Two, students who are members of or affiliated with any group or organization which holds as one of its goals or advocates interracial marriage will be expelled. Three, students who date outside their own race will be expelled. And four, students who espouse, promote, or encourage others to violate the university's dating rules and regulations will, you guessed it, be expelled. According to a report by the Richmond Newsleader, These policies prevented students of different races from eating together, visiting the university's snack shop at the same time, walking together from one building to another, playing tennis together, and attending sports events together, lest they be suspected of intermingling romantically. Tennis matches are infamously hotbeds of romance, after all. Because of the university's racist dating and marriage policies, the IRS issued a final notice of tax-exempt status revocation to BJU in 1976. This action threatened to cripple the university financially. Bob Jones University responded by suing the IRS four months later in federal court. At first, the university won. This is what the judge had to say. Although students may be exposed to theories that are contrary to biblical scripture, The plaintiff's teachers instruct them to disregard these theories and teach the Bible's literal language as being the only true account. The cornerstone of the plaintiff institution is Christian religious indoctrination, not isolated academics. This is a problem that is common to some conservative religious colleges, as they often function as indoctrination academies, meant to protect young minds from worldly ways of thinking. The judge went on. A primary fundamentalist conviction of the plaintiff is that the scriptures forbid interracial dating and marriage. Detailed testimony was presented at trial, elucidating the biblical foundation for these beliefs. The court finds, and the defendant has admitted, that the plaintiff's beliefs against interracial dating and marriage are genuine religious beliefs. It is important to acknowledge that these racist beliefs were the genuine religious beliefs of many Christians at the time, not just Bob Jones and that they base these racist beliefs on their interpretation of the Bible. But more on that later. But the university's win didn't last long. 
the IRS appealed, and the appeals court sided against the university this time. The Court of Appeals cited to Brown versus Board of Education and said, The government's interest in eliminating all forms of racial discrimination in education is compelling. It extends to private action as well as public and has a special vitality where the integration of public schools has made private education attractive to those who would try to turn back the clock. But not every member of the Court of Appeals saw things the same way. In dissent, Circuit Judge Hiram Emery Widener wrote, We are dealing in this case not with the right of the government to interfere in the internal affairs of a school operated by a church, but with the internal affairs of the church itself. There is no difference in this case between the government's right to take away Bob Jones's tax exemption, the exemption of a church which has a rule of its internal doctrine or discipline based on race, although that church may not operate a school at all. Which brings us back to the question, is a religious college a college or a church? Well, let's listen to some of the oral arguments from the final appeal in the case. This time, we are at the United States Supreme Court. Here is William Ball, the attorney for Bob Jones University. Now, the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University, a pervasively religious ministry, which in purpose and character and discipline is a zealous faith community, which would not exist except for its religious goals, has been conditioned upon a requirement that it abandon a religious practice, its marriage policy, which in conscience and fidelity it cannot abandon. But the Supreme Court wasn't so sure about calling Bob Jones University a church ministry. One of the Supreme Court justices asked the attorney for the other side, Mr. Coleman, about that. That's a different question, and I think it will finally, you put your finger on what will point up the distinction I've been trying to make. A church from the time it got the exemption had to be charitable at common law. But the rules as to what a church does, which is legal or not legal, are different from what a school does, which is legal or not legal. As far as I know, there's no decision of this court which says that if the Catholic Church would want to limit its members to Catholic, or would say that we would not, or any other church would say we will not have black members, that that violates the Constitution or it violates any federal statute. But by the same token, you've said that a private school that wishes to do the same thing, uh, that that clearly violates the law. Here is where the Supreme Court came down on the question. We deal here only with religious schools, not with churches or other purely religious institutions. Here, the governmental interest is in denying public support to racial discrimination in education. As noted earlier, racial discriminatory tools exert a pervasive influence on the entire educational process, outweighing any public benefit that they might otherwise provide. In the end, the university lost. The Supreme Court ruled, in an 8-to-1 decision no less, that the IRS could revoke Bob Jones University's tax-exempt status because of its racist dating and marriage policies. The NAACP other civil rights groups, and the black church praised the decision. 
The National Association of Evangelicals, however, did not. At the time, the National Association of Evangelicals, or NAE, was a powerful association of state and local evangelical organizations, colleges, and universities, and some 36,000 churches from 74 denominations. The NAE served a constituency of between 10 to 15 million people. It remains a driving force in American religion and politics. In the Bob Jones University case at the Supreme Court, the NAE sided with the university. The NAE believed that Bob Jones had a religious right to receive federal tax-exempt status, even while engaging in racial discrimination. Here is how the NAE justified it. Evangelicals can and do differ with one another in the interpretation of Scripture, but they are united in their affirmation of the truth and inspiration of the Bible, as well as the Lordship and deity of Jesus Christ. The National Association of Evangelicals called the case an ominous threat to religious freedom. So, there you have it. Even in the 1980s, the white church came down on the side of racism because it believed that religious liberty was supreme. Now, let's jump forward 20 years. It's Friday night on March 3rd in the year 2000. I'm 16 years old. Larry King is interviewing Bob Jones III about why Bob Jones University continues in the 21st century to prohibit its students from dating someone outside of their race. The university's prohibition on interracial dating, which had been in effect for 50 years, is making fresh headlines. Bob Jones is in the hot seat because a month earlier, presidential candidate George W. Bush made a campaign stop at the Fundamentalist Christian School. On the show, Larry King asked Bob Jones. Well, and he chooses to hurt the heart of God. If you were gay, you couldn't be a student? No. We would not keep a student in school. We would not keep an adulterer in school. We would not keep a thief in school. Okay. You put that in the same category, though? Let's remember that Pop Jones is saying these things in the year 2000 as the president of one of the largest Christian colleges in the country at the time. Okay, so at this point, you might be wondering, what could possibly be in the Bible to promote segregation? Let's get into it. Aaron Green is a biblical scholar and used to be the co-executive director of Brave Commons, an organization that planned protests on Christian campuses in order to support their LGBTQ students. Aaron is now the campus and alumni organizer at REAP. I think some critical questions that we must begin to ask ourselves are, where does the justification of segregation stem from? What is the genesis of racist ideologies, transphobic ideologies, and queerphobic ideologies? Well, the simple answer is that they have always come directly from white men who hold the power of interpretation of the Bible. And another critical question that we should be asked is who in our history has always held discursive power over the biblical text? Hmm, I think I know the answer to this one. 
Again, white men have always historically held the sole power to disseminate messages from the pulpit as well as the academy. Okay, here is an example. On Easter Sunday in 1960, Bob Jones delivered a radio address entitled, Is Segregation Scriptural? In it, Bob Jones theologically validates and defends separation of the races, but there is something much more sinister about what happens in this address. Bob Jones does not only advocate for a scriptural rendering of segregation as being true, he insists to his listeners that in order to be in right standing with God, white people and black people must obey what God themselves has designated and designed as separation of the races. In addition, he erases the blatant atrocities that occurred in the era of slavery by turning a horrific time in history into the ultimate good for black people in America. For 45 minutes, Bob Jones psychologically manipulates his listeners in an attempt to control the narrative that any controversy surrounding race is a direct result of no longer believing the Bible to be the authoritative word of God. If you think this sounds familiar, it's because we see people doing this exact same thing today, just with sexuality and gender identity. What's more is that Jones believes that black people should be grateful to whites for abducting them and forcing them into slavery. Even though slavery was wrong, according to Jones, black people were lucky enough to have received the greatest gift of their lives from their white enslavers, the gospel of Christ. Don't take my word for it. Here are some of the direct quotes from the transcript itself. Quoting from Acts 17.26, Jones explains, Paul said that God hath made of one blood all nations of men, but he also fixed the bounds of their habitation. When nations break out of their boundaries and begin to do things contrary to the purpose of God and the direct will of God, they have trouble. The world is in turmoil today because men and nations go contrary to the clear teaching of the word of God. And... If you are against segregation and against racial separation, then you are against God Almighty because he made racial separation in order to preserve the race through whom he could send the Messiah and through whom he could send the Bible. God is the author of segregation. Jones continues by glossing over the harsh and evil realities of slavery and the lived experiences of black folks during Jim Crow and the civil rights era in the 1960s. For many years we have lived together. Occasionally there will be a flare-up, but the white people have helped the colored people build their churches, and we have gotten along together harmoniously and peacefully, and everything has come along fine. No two races ever lived as close together as the white people and the colored people here in the South and got along so well. Jones weaves together a false narrative about race, the experiences of black Americans, and then he buttresses his arguments with why black people should be grateful for white saviorism through delivering to black communities the gospel message during slavery. We should have let the Africans stay in Africa instead of bringing them here for slaves. But did you colored people ever stop to think where you might have been if that had not happened? Now you colored people listen to me. If you had not been brought over here, and if your grandparents in slavery days had not heard that great preaching, you might not even be a Christian. You might be over there in the jungles of Africa today, unsaved. 
but you are here in America, where you have your own schools and your own churches and your own liberties and your own rights, with certain restrictions that God Almighty put about you, restrictions that are in line with the Word of God. Bob Jones is one example of white Christian supremacy and theology at work. His theology plays directly into the demonization of black communities, and most white constituencies remain silent about the oppression of their black neighbors. But Bob Jones didn't just make this stuff up in the 1960s. Exactly 100 years before Jones gave his segregation address, a preacher from South Carolina named James Henry Thornwell was advocating for slavery and justifying it through the biblical text. This ideology in the South was par for the course. Thornwell declared, quote, Slavery in itself is not inconsistent with the will of God. It is not sinful. Thornwell believed that the Christian scriptures explicitly condoned slavery in the South. Thornwell also stated that, quote, The Bible sanctions slavery as any other social condition of man. Thornwell used New Testament writings to rationalize slave ownership. Thornwell could cite Paul's letters to the Ephesians where it states, quote, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart. Theologians and preachers like Thornwell use their pulpits and platforms to advocate for slavery economically, socially, politically, and in the name of Southern patriotism. Southern slave owners actually had a much easier time making their case from the Bible than abolitionists did. They could appeal to what they called a plain reading of the text. After all, the Bible includes all these references to slavery and nobody is ever punished for it or accused of being sinful. In their mind, God was on the side of the Confederacy because the Bible was pro-slavery. In his book, The Color of Compromise, Jamar Tisby, a black scholar and speaker, writes about how abolitionist readings of the Bible were initially viewed with skepticism because abolitionists could not quote an exact chapter or verse to justify their position. They were criticized for basing their arguments on abstract principles like loving your neighbor and unity for humankind. In October of 2020, three weeks before the election in which the country would choose between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, Jamar Tisby delivered a chapel sermon on racial justice to the students of Grove City College, a conservative Christian college in Pennsylvania. His sermon was grounded in scripture, calling for a more racially equitable, inclusive, and unified church, and was well received by the students who attended. However, a petition later surfaced from parents and alumni accusing the college of mission drift and allowing dangerous worldviews like critical race theory to creep into campus. The petition cited Jamar Tisby's chapel presentation as an example. In response, Grove City College formed a committee to review the situation and issue a report. The report said that, quote, the committee's appointment is extraordinary. We cannot recall a similar action at GCC. It was prompted by persistent reports of actions allegedly indicating creeping wokeness at the college, particularly through the introduction of critical race theory. Those allegations are provocative because they conflict with Grove City College's well-earned reputation as a conservative, independent, and Christ-centered college 
standing athwart the increasingly progressive higher education environment. In May of 2022, the Board of Trustees voted to adopt the committee's report, which included a line that said, quote, Inviting Mr. Tisby to speak in chapel was a mistake. For Grove City College, a black Christian scholar like Jamar Tisby, who preached racial justice based on biblical concepts of human dignity and equality, was not biblical enough. Again, where have I heard this before? Oh, right. When people say that the Bible is totally clear in condemning queer people, and that talking about things like God's love for all of humanity and being made in the image of God is not literal enough or doesn't take a plain reading of the text seriously. Wow, they really haven't changed their argument in the last 200 years, have they? It is important to note that even in the 1950s and 60s, not all conservative religious schools, colleges, and denominations embraced these racist beliefs. And some of those that did have since apologized, which counts for something, I guess. But into the 1970s and 1980s, even if they did not hold those racist religious beliefs themselves, they fought for the right of religious schools to practice racism on the basis of their sincerely held religious beliefs. That was what religious freedom meant to some Christian schools at the time. Fast forward 40 years, and they are fighting the same fight with respect to their sincerely held religious beliefs regarding sexuality and gender identity. Whether it is 1950 or 2023, there is a consistent thread of belief linking then and now. Conservative religious schools firmly believe that they are above the civil rights laws of this country. That's what makes them a part of white Christian supremacy. Through lobbying, winning elections, and funneling ultra-conservative judicial candidates through the Trump administration, they have achieved something astounding. Immunity from nearly all civil rights laws and access to almost unlimited government funding. On January 15th, 2023, David French, a conservative political commentator and now columnist with the New York Times, reflected on this immunity, writing that for taxpayer-funded religious schools and colleges that practice blatant discrimination, their, quote, liberties are secure. In fact, they're more secure than they've ever been. Many of the white people controlling these religious institutions not only want to run their schools and colleges this way, they want to run their state, local, and federal governments this way. They want to run your public schools and your hospitals this way. Just look at Oklahoma. The state school board of Oklahoma just approved the first religious, fully public school in the country. This is what Michael Ferris wants. This is what the Alliance Defending Freedom wants. This is what a majority of the United States Supreme Court will let happen by weakening civil rights laws and allowing states to legislate based on the Bible. Now let's go back to that Larry King interview to see how white Christian supremacy impacts queer, trans, and non-binary students at Christian colleges. 
wrong. Man so, chooses to hurt the heart of God. If you were gay, you couldn't be a student? No. We, we would not keep a student in school. We would not keep an adulterer in school. We would not keep a thief in school. On the next episode, we'll introduce you to Elizabeth Hunter, one of the gay students that Bob Jones would not keep as a student. As far back as I can remember, I wanted to go to school. And my parents had kind of downplayed my college ideas. When I was 17, I said, I want to go to college. My dad said, well, in the Bible, Israelites could go to war when they were 21. And going to college is like going to war because you're fighting in a culture war. And before this series is over, we'll tell you how we are gearing up for our biggest battle yet. One they might not see coming. Thanks for tuning in to On God's Campus, Voices from the Queer Underground. I'm your narrator, Chloe, alongside co-hosts Paul Carlos Southwick and Aaron Green. This podcast is a product of the Religious Exemption Accountability Project and is produced by Crystal Cheatham from Our Bible App. Listen next time as On God's Campus examines the lessons history has to teach us about where predominantly white Christian educational institutions and the political machines backing them are taking the country now. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.